Genesis chapter 49. As it's been a little bit, we've had a bit of a break here as we did a couple Wednesdays ago. What's happening with uh, Jack Gibbs and Amir Sarfati? That was great. And uh, so we've taken a little bit of time off from being in Genesis, but now we're looking to wrap it up here, Lord willing, uh, as we pick it up here in, in Genesis 49. And really what we see here are, you know, final words now from Jacob as he's looking to gather his children around him and just pronounce this kind of blessing upon his kids as, as was a very traditional thing to do in that day as the father would come on his deathbed and pronounce that blessing. However, uh, not all the sons are really receiving quite a blessing as we'll see. <laughs> some, some of it's more cursing than, than a blessing to these kids. Nevertheless, what's really interesting here, well, let me read verse one and two to you here. And and Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and, and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Interesting that, that Jacob refers to himself by those two names that he has been known by Jacob, the given name, but then Israel, the name that was given to him by God when Jacob wrestled with God and kind of finally surrendered that that his life to, to the Lord and Israel really means governed by God. And Jacob came to that point where he knew he needed to rely on and trust in the Lord. And yet he's seeing now with his children, I think, some are going to be those that are going to be led by the flesh as Jacob was. Others are going to be governed by God as Israel was to be. But what's interesting is Jacob comes alongside his children he says, let me tell you what shall befall you in the last days. When you see the term last days, it always kind of has that idea of, of, you know, the end times in view. What we're going to be seeing from Jacob is this kind of prophecy being given to his children. One of the, the, the great distinguishing marks of the Bible is indeed its prophetic element. About one quarter, some say, you know, between one quarter to one third of the Bible is prophecy. It's not just prophecy, it's predictive prophecy. We're talking about things that have not happened uh, when they were spoken and then have come to pass much later in time. You think about prophecies that were given about Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years, the Micah 5, 2, the very place that he'd be born, being prophesied some 700 years before Christ was even born in Bethlehem. I mean, you see the remarkable accuracy of the Bible. It'd be like somebody back in the 1300s prophesying about a small nation that would make big news with all these machines rolling into its kingdom palace to over you'll be looking at it going what and then to see that actually happen you'd be like wow how did they know 1300s how did they know that was gonna happen there's no way other than just you know divine intervention and that's what the bible reveals to us is that this is god's handprint upon his word this is the living word of god and it's something that has been validated through its fulfilled prophecy and jacob is going to be doing just that with with his sons here is he's going to be revealing not just things about them but things that are going to be a mark of them even years and years after they're gone the kind of legacy that they're going to leave and and, and regarding the tribes of israel that they're going to be representing it's amazing to see just the 
the 100% accuracy that, that the Bible has in its prophecy. No other religious book can claim that, can it? No other religious book can claim of its author, you know, revealing things yet to come and, and have that 100% accuracy of it. It's a, an amazing book. It reveals that it's the living word of God. God said in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I'm God and there's no other. I'm God and there's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So here we see in Genesis 49, uh, just this remarkable scene unfolding with Jacob sitting on the edge of his bed. He's at the point of death and he pronounces blessings now upon each of his 12 sons. And these were uh, these blessings are going to be very prophetic in nature because we see Jacob revealing the very things that will become of his sons. These 12 sons, like I said, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the ones that will you know, eventually settle into the land of Canaan, these tribes. And, and history would reveal how precise these predictions are. And, and interestingly, as we go through chapter 49 here, Jacob didn't kind of just roll through the line of his kids uh, in chronological order from uh, you know, their, their birth, oldest to the youngest, but he dealt with them in groups and, and more so in accordance to you know, who their moms were as Jacob had uh, Leah and Rachel's wives and then the, the concubine of each of them, uh, Zilpah and Billah. And so he's gonna kind of group them together in that kind of category. Look at verse three, Reuben, he says, you are my firstborn my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Reuben was his firstborn. And of course, uh, the practice of those days was that the firstborn in any household was entitled to twice the inheritance received by the other sons and he was honored above all others. And so the firstborn carried with it great privilege and responsibility. Reuben, I'm sure, as the blessings are coming, is standing up there thinking, all right, you know, and, and, and here Jacob just begins to, you know, share with them, oh man, you are the might and the beginning of my strength. And I'm sure Reuben's chest is just puffing out, you know, he's thinking, yeah, that's right. I mean, this would be awesome to hear from your father, the excellency of dignity and power. Who wouldn't want to be referred to that or in that way. I can imagine Reuben just standing there so full of pride looking at his brothers. You hear that? You hear that, guys? I am the excellence right now, dignity and the excellency of power. And like this chest puffed out, only we begin to read in verse four. It's like the balloon that's blown up and let go with a squeal and just flutters to the ground. Because in verse four, Jacob says, yeah, you're unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. One minute Reuben's like top of the world, the next moment he's like just squashed right down, unstable as well. That's not something you want to be defining you or your character, you're unstable as well. That's nothing that you walk away from going, hey, thank you for that. That really makes me feel good. This was not helpful for Reuben. Now, Reuben tried to do what was right at times, but then he went about it the wrong way. He wanted to, you know, consolidate or confirm his position as the head of the family, but he did so by lying with his father's concubine, Billa. He wanted to try and secure his, his father's trust by going to Egypt with Benjamin and 
Remember Reuben said to Jacob in Genesis chapter 42, verse 37, kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. If I don't, if I don't secure Benjamin and bring him back to you, then kill my two sons. Now, I'm sure his sons are sitting there going, um, come again there, dad? What are you trying to say? I remember when Judah stepped up and he said to his father, you know what? Hold my life accountable. Reuben's going, take my boys. But Judah's saying, hold my life accountable if, if Benjamin doesn't return to you. So Reuben wanted to do the right thing, but oftentimes did it in the wrong way. He was unstable. And look at what James 1 verse 6 to 8 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is kind of Reuben, a little bit double-minded, unstable in his ways. He was all over the place, essentially, even when it came time to inhabit the promised land. It was the tribe of Reuben that decided, you know what? We kind of like it on the eastern side of the Jordan. We kind of like it over here. Uh, we don't really want to come in and, and take on the, the difficulty of the promised land, the inhabitants there. We're going to remain in just kind of comfortable area here on the east side of the Jordan. They didn't claim the promises that God had. Double-minded. And they became easy pickings for the enemy when those enemies would come down into Israel. The tribe of Reuben never did excel. No prophet, no judge, or no king came from the tribe of Reuben. Reuben is an example of how the first can be last as well. And then look at verse five. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly for in their anger they slew a man and in their self will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Simeon and Levi were next, the next born uh, of Leah following after Reuben. And these brothers are linked together because of their joint effort in carrying out some extreme vengeance upon Shechem and the men uh, that were there in that city. Uh, Genesis 34 gives us that account. Now, they may have felt justified for what Shechem had done to their sister Dinah, but their anger got the better of them. And what happens? They, they acted out in wrath. That's what Jacob is, is saying there. Their anger, in their anger, they, they slew a man. Their wrath, it is cruel in verse seven, he says. They allowed their anger to get the better of them. It, it, and that idea of wrath is that uncontrollable, boiling over pressure of emotions that erupts in this wrath and oftentimes results in great hurt to both parties, to the ones that you're executing that wrath on, but then to yourself in, in how you've conducted yourself and what you've done out of that wrath. James chapter one, verse 20 says, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And how we need to be those that have a handle upon our emotions and anger and wrath because nothing good ever comes out of wrath. And yet this is how Jacob is, is referring to and characterizing both Simeon and Levi. They were cruel in their wrath. Their anger got the best of them. And Simeon and Levi will unfortunately 
pay the penalty for this act of wrath and violence, and it's going to affect their descendants. They will be scattered throughout the land of Israel. By the time we hear the census being given in Numbers chapter 26, um, we see that Simeon and Levi were the two smallest tribes. Now, Simeon was basically just absorbed into the tribe of Israel. Levi, however, interestingly, by the grace of God, remember when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and then down below, they're all going, I don't think Moses is coming back. Let's build a God for ourselves. They make the golden calf. Moses comes down and he hears all this partying going on and sees what happens. And, and Moses says, choose now, you know, who's going to stand on the Lord's side? And it was uh, the tribe of Levi that went and stood up and said, we're going we're gonna to stand on the Lord's side. And they sided with Moses and they were the ones that were to, you know, take out uh, those that were guilty in this act with the, with the golden calf. And so now because of that, God in his grace allowed them to be the, the priestly tribe. And so because they're the priestly tribe, they were not to inherit any land in and of themselves as a tribe. They were given 48 cities among the land of Israel where they were also to be spread out. And this is exactly what Jacob is saying, again, well before this ever came about, hundreds of years before this ever happened. I will divide them in Jacob at the end of verse seven and scatter them in Israel. That's exactly what happened here. Now, the lesson for us is that our sin has consequences, guys. But thanks be to God, there is grace and we're not shelved when we sin. We need to seek forgiveness and continue to be those that will choose to stand on the Lord's side, just like Levi's descendants did. They had the privilege now of serving God in the sacred things of the, the tabernacle and in the temple. So let me put up a little map here. I don't know if you'll be able to see this. Uh, it's like too much to cover on like one slide. And so um, if you got really good eyesight, uh, you can maybe distinguish some of the, uh, all the tribes are listed there. But Judah is encompassing all the southern area. Simeon is just kind of like uh, a little circle within the tribe of Judah. Um, and now we're going to talk about Judah actually. Look at verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So Judah now becomes the one that rises in prominence over his brothers. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, boom. Reuben should have been the, the firstborn, and, and and, and the privilege of the firstborn. Uh, he dis was disqualified, it should have gone to Simeon. He was disqualified, should have gone to Levi, disqualified. So now Judah is the guy that rises to prominence over and above his brothers. He says, they will praise him, which is a play on words as Judah's name means praise. He would be the one that would indeed be praised. So the birthright, understand, the birthright was actually passed to Joseph more so to his two sons, but Judah would be the tribe of prominence as the royal tribe. Jacob says, your father's children shall bow down before you. They're gonna take that position as a royal tribe. In fact, it even says in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, 
his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler, although the birthright was Joseph's. So here again, Chronicles, we're seeing what happened. The birthright given to Joseph, or more so to his two sons, but Judah prevailed, and out of him will come a ruler. Jacob says, oh, Judah, you're like a, a lion's whelp, like a lion." Uh, cub is what he's saying he's going to grow though into a strong line you know it's going to take over 600 years for this to come into play Moses would come from the tribe of Levi Joshua the next leader would come from Ephraim Gideon would be out of Manasseh Samson another great judge would come from Dan Samuel from Ephraim and Saul from Benjamin it would be David though who would eventually emerge as a king and out of the tribe of Judah. And from then on, the scepter, and when, when it mentions the scepter here in verse 10, that scepter uh, was a symbol of kingship. That's kind of what it meant there. It was that symbol of kingship. And from then on, the scepter would not depart from Judah. It would culminate in the greater than David, Jesus Christ, who was as Revelation 5, 5 says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, as Judah is being called the, the lion's whelp, as a lion who shall rouse him. Very interesting. And then it says something interesting at, at the end or the middle of verse 10, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now the word Shiloh is kind of a, an interesting word to sort of decipher and translate. Many believe it simply means he whose right it is. He whose right it is. And since the ultimate right to the throne of God's kingdom belongs to the Messiah, the rabbis always took Shiloh to be a reference or another name for the Messiah. Now this prophecy says that the scepter or the rule shall not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. Now, a shocking thing happened in Israel in and around 7 AD. The Jewish capital right uh, of punishment or uh, the right to capital punishment was stripped by the Romans. And, and they, the Jews saw this as their right to self-rule. And when they saw that that was gone, they thought God's word's broken because we have not seen Shiloh come yet, the Messiah come yet. And our right of, of government has been taken from us. Remember when the Sanhedrin approached Pilate asking him to crucify Jesus or to you know, deal with Jesus. Pilate handed it back to them and said, you, you take care of that. But they said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, right? John chapter 18, verse 31. They all replied, it's not lawful. You've taken that away from us. We don't have the right to this any longer. And when that was taken from them in 7 AD, it's reported that Jewish rabbis walked the streets in despair saying, woe unto us for the scepter has been taken away from Judah and Shiloh has not yet come. Yet, God's word was not broken. Why? Because little did the rabbis know that Shiloh, 
Jesus the Messiah was actually in their midst, perhaps working in a carpenter shop in Nazareth all along. God's word will never be broken. Right when we think that all hope might be lost, we never know what God has waiting in the wings, perhaps hidden out of our sight, yet ready to emerge at just the right time. All along, when they're weeping, crying, the scepter's been taken from us and Shiloh's not come, Jesus was there in their midst and they failed to recognize him, and they failed to receive him. Awesome prophecy that Jacob gives. And then in verse 11, it goes on to say, and this is still referencing Judah, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Now, that has kind of similar language to what we read in, in Revelation with Jesus coming you know, from um, Eden with, with his garments dyed in, in red, soaked in, in blood in a sense from the vengeance, from the, the wrath that he's executing at his second coming in destroying those that are going against his people and against God. Some have seen that as similar reference, but many more so, and I, this is what I would see this as, that this is a reference to a future day, a the, the time of the millennium when Jesus does come back and he establishes his kingdom and his rule on the earth. And what's gonna happen? It's gonna be a very prosperous time in the world when Jesus establishes his reign and his rule. Many see this as speaking of the millennial reign of our King Jesus. Um, A.P. Ross says this, with the coming of Messiah, there will be paradise like splendor and kidner says that every line of genesis 49 verse 7 12 speaks of exuberant intoxicating abundance it is the golden age of the coming one whose universal rule was glimpsed at the end of verse 10 and to him shall be the obedience of the people for judah grapevines will be so abundant that they will be used for hitching posts wine will be as abundant as wash water in Judah, people's eyes will be red or bright from wine and their teeth will be white from drinking much milk that will be supplied for them. These are picturesque ways of describing the suitability of Judah's territory for vineyards. Such opulence will be evident in the millennium. The millennium is gonna be a great day, my friends. I cannot wait. We're gonna, we're gonna be on the earth with a restored, revitalized world. Something that all of our you know, push for, uh, you know, green stuff, you know what I'm trying to say, right? That's never gonna solve the problems of the world. Jesus will solve all the problems of the world and he will restore the world and we're gonna see just such a, a, a blessing go out over all the world when Christ is present and reigning and ruling in the world. And this is what is being spoken on verses 11 and 12. Nobody would ever think to hitch their donkey to a vine. The donkey would destroy the vines, eat of it. But in the millennium, they're seeing these vines just gonna be so strong and there's gonna be so much plentiful of vines and grapes that, ah, hitch your donkey to it. Let them eat away. We're never gonna run out. That's kind of the idea here. So cool. Well, verse 13, we move on to look at Zebulun. And Jacob says, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. So Zebulun actually is, is up in the north there, but uh, just uh, uh, to the west of the Sea of Galilee. But Zebulun never did uh, in Old Testament times 
um, border the Mediterranean Sea or even reach up to Sidon, as Jacob is, is saying there. Nevertheless, it was situated in a, in a very interesting spot where it benefited from commerce and trade taking place from the sea and then moving along an important trade route through her territory. And again, many see that this is referencing a future day, perhaps in the millennium when Zebulun will extend to the city uh, and will border the Mediterranean Sea at that point. Ezekiel chapter 48 speaks about that actually, verses one to eight of Ezekiel 48. So verse 14, Jacob says, Issachar is a strong donkey. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but we'll go with it. Is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So the Issachar tribe was a, a strong and hardworking people. They cultivated the fertile land that sat on the eastern side of the Jezreel Valley. And, and they were ones that weren't after political supremacy, but rather agricultural productivity. And as a result, they were ready to bow down to whatever ruler was over them. They weren't so much concerned about that as they were just about tending to uh, their fields and being productive in that. They were content with their lot and made the most of it. This tribe produced no great heroes, but their everyday labor was a help to others. After all, not everybody in Israel was called to be a Judah or a Joseph. And then verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So the very name Dan means judge. And here Jacob says, you're gonna judge your people. And out of this tribe actually came one of the more well-known judges, Samson. He came from the tribe of Dan. And yet Dan would also eventually lead Israel into great idolatry. Dan eventually moved up to the north area they became the, the, the most northern tribe in Israel. And it's here that a golden calf was set up for worship. This was the beginning of the idolatry that really caused the nation of Israel to fall. And that's what Jacob is referring to. They're gonna be a serpent, by the way, a viper by, by the path that bites the horse's heels, so his rider shall fall backward. And Israel had a great fall because of idolatry that was introduced um, largely in part by the tribe of Dan. Some see this reference to a serpent, by the way, as a potential reference to the Antichrist coming out of Dan. Revelation 7, interestingly, when it lists all the, the tribes, those that were sealed, 144,000 sealed of Israel, Dan is omitted from that list of tribes given there. Um, and, and you can make a case for that. It's not a hard and fast case, I'm not saying that's, that's what's gonna happen because Dan actually becomes the first tribe that's mentioned in the millennial roll call of tribes in Ezekiel chapter 48. So you have to you know, juggle that with it. But nevertheless, Jacob seems to pause here as he envisions the fall of Israel to say, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Hey, this is the first time that that word salvation is used in the Bible. It's right here in Genesis 49. The first time that word salvation is used and it's the Hebrew word Yeshua. It's the name Jesus. How interesting is that? 
Hope is found in Jesus alone. The answer to all our woes and our struggles is Jesus. He is our salvation. And, and Jacob could very well have been recalling the promise of the woman's seed and how the serpent would strike his heel, Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, how the serpent would strike his heel, but yet he would crush his head. I've waited for your salvation. I've waited for Yeshua. He's the answer. He's the one that we look to to be our help and to be our hope in all things. Verse 19, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Gad is another tribe that decided to dwell on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They did not come in and occupy the land that was given to them. And so they never received the fullness of the promises of God. As a result, they were often subject to the enemy's attacks. As the enemies would come in, they were the first tribe that they would oftentimes, you know, hit upon and so they had to endure much nevertheless they remained valiant and they triumphed over their foes jacob says and that's what happened with the with the tribe of gad verse 20 bread from asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties asher would move in a land that did border the mediterranean sea asher's up near the north there and sat around mount carmel it was fertile farmland as well and from here they would produce delicacies that were fit for a king naphtali is a deer let loose he uses beautiful words now the land of naphtali is around the sea of galilee what happened around the sea of galilee well that's a place that jesus kind of took up headquarters there in capernaum and where he did much of his ministry was around the sea of galilee in other words people heard the most beautiful words ever spoken there in that region of Naphtali. Just as Jacob says, he uses beautiful words. Then, verse 22, we get to Joseph. Look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow remained in strength and, in, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you and by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled, the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Now Joseph was never named among the tribes of Israel. He was again replaced by his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim. They were given the allotment in the land. But it says that he's going to be a fruitful bough. How is Joseph so fruitful? Well notice it says he'll be a fruitful bough by a well Joseph was one that received that living water nourishment that caused him to be fruitful. The same goes for us unless we're abiding in Christ, unless we're receiving in that living water that Jesus will have flowing out of our hearts, we too will bear no fruit. We must abide in Christ. And being fruitful, Joseph was able to provide so richly for his family during the famine. He brought protection and care for them. Joseph was a a fruitful bough that, that branches just, you know, 
ran over the wall and just providing for many people. Now, even though, as Jacob says, he was shot at and he was hated, Joseph didn't become bitter or, or weakened as a result. He remained strong. How? Jacob says, it's by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. It's by the Lord God. God was his shepherd who cared for him and provided for him. God was that stone of Israel, Jacob says, who strengthened Joseph as that rock. Now, the same goes for us as we again understand, man, though we might be shot at, though we might have things coming against us, people that hate us, we have a shepherd who protects us, who takes care of us. We have a rock, a fortress that we run to where we find protection and strength. It's all found in the almighty God, the God of Jacob, it says. Now, Jacob didn't have an easy life by any means, did he? But Jacob recognized that the end of his life, that his blessings have excelled those of his ancestors, May we never fail to remember just how blessed we are in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14 lays out the many ways that we are blessed in the heavenly places in Christ. We have much in him. And now Jacob pronounces that Joseph would have those same blessings. That Joseph would have those same blessings. It's quite significant that the two sons that Jacob pronounced the longest blessings were uh, Judah and um, Judah and Ephraim, these were indeed the two dominant tribes of Israel. Ephraim became representative of the northern tribe. Judah became representative of the, the southern tribes of Israel. Judah and Ephraim, here represented through Judah and Jacob given a great kind of uh, word to Judah and then also to Joseph, whereas representing Ephraim as well. Lassie, Benjamin, verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. That's an interesting word. Remember how much Jacob loved Benjamin again, that last son from the, the wife of Rachel, the one he loved, and, and how he didn't want anything to happen to, to Benjamin, and yet here he has quite a strong word towards him. The oracle about Benjamin describes a tribe violent in spirit, a ravenous, devouring wolf, and we saw that. In, in Judges chapter 20, with the cruelty of the Benjamites going out against uh, the people. And then in Saul, who was also a Benjamite, 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. And we saw just with that first king, uh, Saul, and, and just kind of the, the terror that, that he was. So no doubt, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, living up to those things, sadly. Well, verse 28, all these now are the... 12 tribes of Israel. The first time that we see reference to the 12 tribes of Israel right here again in Genesis 49. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there, Jacob says, I buried Leah. 
The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. It's interesting that Jacob, you know, he could have been laid to rest in an opulent tomb in Egypt. I mean, this man, because of Joseph, was, was highly, you know, favored. He had garnered that kind of respect with Joseph as his son. But Jacob knew that Canaan was the place that he wanted to, to, to die or at least be placed um, there. That was the land of promise. See, even in death, Jacob was holding on to all that God would still and yet do. Jacob knew that God wasn't done yet, and he held on to those promises right to the point of death, seeking to be buried in Canaan. Now, Chuck Smith says, and I think this is so interesting, historically, we've already covered more than half the time from Adam to Christ. His death was about 2,255 years after Adam, the creation of Adam. That means we have only 1,600 years or so left until the coming of Christ. In the book of Genesis, we cover more than half of the history of the Old Testament as far as chronology is concerned. It is all compressed into the book of Genesis. From Exodus through to Malachi, we'll be covering the other 1,600 years. So, very interesting to see just kind of the, the depth and the, the, the measure of history that's right here in the book of Genesis. We cover a lot as we go through this book. We're not done though. Chapter 50 says here in verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Interestingly, the Egyptians had embalming down to a science, down to a fine art, to where people even today cannot figure out how they did this so well. And then in verse 3, 40 days were required for him. For such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Now, a royal mourning period in Egypt was 72 days. So they're mourning for Jacob 70 days. That's signifying how much of an important figure this guy was and how much he was held in high honor. Now, verse 4, when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only... Their little ones, their flocks, and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. Verse 9, And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which means the mourning of Egypt. And this is beyond the Jordan. So in verse 12, his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought 
with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. So the Canaanites here, uh, they saw what's going on. They realized that this was a great procession and mourning of the Egyptians. And they, they figured this has got to be someone special. But this had more to do with Jacob's link to Joseph. Jacob was definitely important as a patriarch, but in regards to Egypt and the Egyptians mourning this way, it was all due to Joseph. In the same way, the only thing that matters in our lives is us being linked to Jesus. Are we in him? Because he makes all the difference in our lives. We're nothing apart from him. Verse 15 goes on to say, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now there's something so tragic here that we read and that is that the hearts here of the brothers have not yet comprehended grace and forgiveness. See, if we fail to comprehend the grace of God, our heart will often condemn us and cause us to fear his vengeance. Cause us to fear him rather than just come to him boldly where we find that grace and mercy. Romans 8 verse 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. See, when we come to know the grace of God and his forgiveness, we can be at peace. We understand he's the one that, that does it, not us. It's not by our goodness that we're forgiven. It's by his grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. I know many Christians that struggle to comprehend God's grace, struggle to receive God's grace, and they, they walk around in torment because they feel unforgiven. They feel unworthy, undeserving. And you're right, we are undeserving and unworthy, but that's where grace kicks in because it's getting what we don't deserve. Jesus loves us and has forgiven us. I think these brothers continue to feel the guilt in their heart and, and how they treated Joseph and they wondered what they could do to make it up to him. But the answer was they could do nothing. They simply needed to receive and know the forgiveness that was already given to them. Joseph wept probably because he saw how his brothers doubted his character. Let us not doubt God's good character. Let us not doubt God's grace and forgiveness that he shows us and bestows upon us and lavishes us with his love. Verse 18, then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and they said, behold, we are your servants. Interestingly, that was another fulfillment of Joseph's dream from chapter 38. The brothers are his servants. They're, they're, they're bowing down before him. And then in verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What precious words these are that we read here tonight. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? In other words, Joseph knew that it was not his place to carry out any revenge. This was God's work to do. It's always better to leave things in the Lord's hands, isn't it? How often we've tried to say, you know what? This needs to be made right, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make sure this is right. I'm going to bring that kind of judgment or correction down on that person. And we end up trying to do so, and we just make more of a, mat, more of a problem, more of a mess. Instead of just leaving it up to the Lord. Because he does a much better job of it. He will indeed bring just judgment. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We need to remember that. He will repay. He will take care of those things that we see are out of whack, that need correction. He'll take care of those things. Now, Joseph shows just such an amazing perspective in all that he's had to endure and go through. Uh, uh, he's faced so much, and yet he can, at the end of his life, look at all these things and say, you meant evil against me, but guess what? God meant it for good. That's pretty incredible. Those things that come against us, that seem to knock us down or wreak havoc in our lives, aren't meant to overcome you. God's at work and God's in control. And when we look to the Lord, when we cling to the Lord, when we allow the Lord to carry out his purposes in our lives, he can turn all those things around for good. He's at work. The pit is part of the process to bring about the promise. That's oftentimes how it works in our lives. God allows things to happen in our lives, but so that he can bring about an even greater plan and work that we sometimes get in the way of when we feel like we're in control of our lives. But when he allows things to happen to where we have no other recourse but to simply cling to God and let him lead, then he can bring about the good that he's always intended. The trial or struggle you may be encountering, God is able to use to accomplish something great. That's the attitude and the perspective that every believer should have because Joseph illustrates Romans 8, 28 so well and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Joseph's life just encapsulates that verse so well. And may we hold on to that promise for us as we continue to love God and serve him and say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why I have to go through this trial or hardship, but I know that this doesn't have to be the end of me. This can be the beginning of God and the opportunity that you take to bring about your good in all these things. I want to read something to you from this book, Portraits of Christ in Genesis, because in the life of Joseph, we see just so many great pictures uh, of Jesus and the work that he's doing. It says this, for the greatest demonstration of the grace of God in response to man's sin, we must of necessity go to Calvary. So come with me and follow the one of whom Joseph was only a shadow. He was the perfect sinless son of God who did not have to come into the sinful world to redeem us. 
God was not obligated to send his son. God had spoken, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Man disobeyed and God had a perfect right to damn Adam on the spot and banish him forever. Justice demanded it. But instead, God planned a redemption. And in the fullness of time, Jesus came. He was rejected by the very ones he came to seek. They captured him like a criminal, subjected him to an illegal trial by night, inflicted the most savage brutality upon him, struck him in the face, plucked out his beard, spit on him, stripped him naked, scourged him, and then led him up the hill to Calvary to die. Now listen, that man was the innocent son of God. He had done no evil. So here we remind you again that a sovereign God could have stopped this entire unspeakable murder of his innocent son. We repeat, God could have prevented the suffering and murder of his son, for he is sovereign and the son was innocent. Why then did God step, why then did not God step in and stop that mad mob? But instead God permitted it and made no move to interfere as he hung upon the cross the cruel oriental sun beating upon his fever naked body, a howling mob of, sadic, uh, of sadistic savages taunted him and challenged him to come down from the cross. We feel like crying out, oh God, where are you? Oh God, why do you permit this infamy to continue? Oh God, this is your lovely son who hangs there in agony and he is innocent and his tormentors are guilty sinners. Oh God, do something, do something, but there's no answer. Instead, he plunges his son in a God-forsaken darkness as he snuffs out the sun and stars, he draws down the curtains of heaven as the sun now cries, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Once more we ask, oh God, what's the matter with you? How can you keep silent? Why don't you send fire from heaven and consume this mob? Why don't you send a deluge of brimstone and sweep them all into hell? It is what they deserve. You have a right to damn them forever. Oh God, give us an answer. Well, there is an answer. God can do something bigger than send those murders all to hell. Yes, God has a greater plan in mind. He could permit these murders to put to death his son and then make the death of his son the only means to save those murderers from hell. God could take the murder of his son and make it the means of saving the murderers. That's the story of Joseph, who said to his brethren, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. The shadow was fulfilled at Calvary. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. So what a wonderful picture we have here in the life of Joseph and the book of Genesis of just the great work that Jesus did. Oh, people might intend something for evil, but God can use it for good in ways that we can never comprehend or understand. May we trust in the heart of our Father and cling to the grace of God. Verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, 
he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. So Esau, uh, Joseph became a great, great grandfather, I think it basically was. Pretty awesome. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's the way that the book of Genesis ends. Now Joseph, as well as Jacob, you know, believed in the promises of God. He knew that God was going to bring the Hebrew people back to the land of Canaan, the land of promise. So Joseph asked for his body to be taken in when God eventually would lead the children of Israel back to Canaan. Joseph wasn't buried, he was placed in a coffin. A wonderful reminder of their impending exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. It's the same results for us through Christ's death and resurrection. We too will move out of this land and into our promised land of heaven one day because of what Jesus has done. This is not our home. We are looking forward to all that God has promised for us. Interestingly, Genesis here begins with creation and it ends with a coffin. Begins in a garden and ends in a grave. Begins with the living God and it ends with a dead man. You know, it reveals the effects of sin, the outcome of a world that's disobedient to God's plan and will. But praise be to God, the Bible ends again with another garden and a God that's defeated death where eternal life will reign and all things will become new. What a day that's gonna be. So we remember here, um, worship team, you guys have another song we're gonna do? Awesome. Oh, come on up. Um, we remember just the incredible picture that Joseph is of Jesus. And again, just in, in a number of chapters that we see Joseph, we see just so many types and pictures of Jesus. In, in the book, um, Joseph, Patriarch of Character, there were 101 ways in which Joseph pictures Jesus. To name just a few, Joseph was a shepherd, just as Jesus is our good shepherd. Joseph was loved by his father, as Jesus too. Heard his father say, this is my beloved son. Joseph and Jesus were both sent unto their brethren. They were both obedient to their father. They were hated by their brothers, prophesied his coming glory. They were rejected by their brothers, endured unjust punishment. They were sold for pieces of silver, handed over to Gentiles, regarded as dead, but then raised out of the pit. Both went to Egypt, both were made his servant. Tempted severely, but they did not sin. They were both falsely accused, neither of them made a defense. They were cast into prison. They were numbered with sinners and with criminals. They endured unjust punishment from Gentiles. They were associated with two criminals. One is pardoned and one is not. They both showed great compassion. Both brought a message of deliverance in prison. Both wanted to be remembered. They were recognized as having the Spirit of God. They were both glorified after their humility. Both were given a Gentile bride. 
blessed the world with bread, was the only source of bread. The world is instructed to go to them and they'll find what they need. There are many more to lay out there of just the similarities and the pictures, but God in his divine wisdom revealing just an, a, a great account to the life of Joseph of what he would ultimately do for the whole world in and through Jesus Christ, our great Savior. Well, lots of great, exciting things there. And uh, if, you, if you're interested in seeing that list of 101 things where they're uh, Joseph, the type of Jesus, let me know. I can email it to you. Send me an email. I'll pass it on to you. But just some really neat and exciting things there that we see in God's good word. Well, we're going to, that's it. Book of Genesis, done. Next time here, yeah. We're going to, uh, I think just pick it up in Exodus and just keep going uh, next week, or next two weeks time, back in here in the book of Exodus, all right? So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, just our time together to study your word, and, and what a rich book this is, the book of beginnings, book of Genesis, and, and the life of Joseph, and how it just reveals so many great truths for us of who you are, Jesus, and, and I pray that, Lord, many of those things that we looked at tonight, you would just be applying to our heart that we'd be living it out. Thank you for the example that we see in Joseph. Thank you for the word of prophecy that we see again, just uh, the divineness of your word and how true and dependable it is. And so I pray that we would live out these things now, strengthen us by your spirit, be with us and lead us. Now we ask in your name, Jesus, amen. Let's all stand together. Let's uh, close with a song here.